Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're going through the archives and presenting some of your favorite Metro Connection stories from the past few months, like the tale of Margaret Meissner, a woman who fled the Nazis on a bicycle, and the story of Samuel Wilbert Tucker, an African-American lawyer who led a sit-in at a library in Alexandria in 1939. We'll begin today's show with a family we met back in October one whose roots extend back to colonial times and whose branches intertwine with those of the father of our country. But our story doesn't start in America. No, records indicate that the patriarch of our family actually comes from Canada. Everything that we have in terms of the family lore suggests that he was in Canada and came south. Steve Hammond is talking about his great-great-great-great-grandfather, William Anderson Syfax, born in 1773. He ended up in Virginia, in Alexandria, and spent his time in the streets uh, being a preacher. Steve's been researching his family line for a while, and though he hasn't found any pictures showing what William looked like, he has unearthed a document containing clues. And you can see down here at the bottom, number 409, basically says William Syfax, a mulatto man, aged about 60 years, 5 feet 6 and a half inches high, with gray, bushy hair and a small black mole under his left eye, and who was set free by Thomas Barocas and Samuel Wheeler by deed, dated 21st of November, 1817. Steve's reading from the Free Slave Register in Arlington. But even though William Anderson Syfax was a manumitted or freed slave, not all of his children were. Like his son Charles, born in 1790 or 1791. Charles Syfax was originally at Mount Vernon, This is Steve Hammond's cousin, Craig Syfax. Craig's making a documentary about the family. He's also president of the Black Heritage Museum of Arlington, an online museum without walls founded by his mother. So in terms of what level of grandfather Charles is to you? He is my fourth generation grandfather. Mm -hmm. Charles belonged to George Washington until the former president died in 1799. At that point, Charles and dozens of other slaves were inherited by Washington's step-grandson and adopted son. George Washington Park Custis, he was the one that left from Mount Vernon and then actually built Arlington House. And it was in Custis's stately home, now part of Arlington National Cemetery. So this is downstairs in the basement of the house. That I met up with Craig earlier this week. This is uh, where the slaves, as they were preparing meals and things like this, this is where the women mainly socialized as they worked. Those women included Charles's wife, a mulatto named Mariah, whose father was none other than George Washington Park Custis. Before she got married, she was Mariah Carter. George Washington Park Custis had relations with a slave named Aria Carter and had Mariah. Mariah was a maid, so clearly she didn't have the same privileges as Custis's other children. But she and her family did hold some status at Arlington. She and Charles were allowed to get married in the house. And as Craig tells me as we head upstairs, Mrs. Custis educated the couple's son and daughter right alongside her own kids. This is where they learned in this room. In 1826, George Washington Park Custis gave Mariah 17 acres of land within the Arlington House Plantation. It was on that land that Charles and Mariah had eight more children, all born free. Custis died in 1857, leaving Arlington House to his only surviving legitimate child, Mary Anna Custis Lee, who had married Robert E. Lee. Custis specified in his will that all of his slaves should be freed by 1862 and the government declared official emancipation one year later in 1863. And at that time is when uh, the government noticed that these slaves were just standing around 
loitering on people's property. And so they said, we need to structure something for these people. Thus, the government established Freedman's Village on part of the Arlington House estate, which it had seized in 1864 when Mary Anna Custis Lee failed to appear at the county courthouse to pay her taxes. The village had schools, a hospital, churches, a market, and of course, houses, though, as Craig Syfax is quick to remind you, they still had to pay taxes as well as rent. More than 1,100 freed people, including some of Custis's former slaves, flocked to Freedman's Village. Charles Syfax was considered a leader there. And because Mariah and Charles's family had received schooling at Arlington House, they taught the other African-Americans how to read and write. The Syfaxes were still living on the plot George Washington Park Custis had given Mariah in the 1820s. But Custis hadn't left any official documentation proving Mariah's right of possession. So when the government seized Arlington House in 1864, the family began to worry. And that's where one of the most well-known Syfaxes comes in. William Syfax. Mariah's son rose to prominence in Washington as a lawyer and educator. He was chief messenger of the Department of the Interior and a staunch advocate for the desegregation of D.C.'s public schools. After the war. William Syfax was the first African-American member of the Board of Trustees of Colored Schools of Washington. So that's why the school is named William Syfax School that was in the Syfax area of D.C. As in southwest D.C., where you can also find Syfax Gardens, a public housing community. But returning to Mariah's 17 acres of land, William Syfax brought the issue to Congress, arguing his mother should be able to keep her property. And in 1866, President Andrew Johnson signed the Bill for the Relief of Mariah Syfax, a move viewed as an early civil rights triumph. Records show the land stayed in the Syfax family until it was sold in 1901. But Craig Syfax says they'll soon reconnect with that land as the Black Heritage Museum of Arlington finally gets a brick-and-mortar home. We have established in stone that Arlington Cemetery will provide land for us to build. But no actual timeline yet? No actual timeline, no actual coordinates of space or square footage. But this is happening, and I would like to say that it will happen soon. The museum will highlight the Syfaxes, as well as other African-American families who have contributed to life in the region. Craig's cousin, Steve Hammond, says the aim is to teach the public about the African-American journey to freedom. One of the goals that I have is to help people see the value of studying their family history, to help the next generation to understand where they came from and where they're going. And until the Black Heritage Museum of Arlington is up on its feet... Hammond hopes to shed light on his own family's history by getting them featured at the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture, set to open on the National Mall next year. You can see photos of the Syfax family and find a link to the trailer for Craig Syfax's documentary on our website, metroconnection.org. Our next story takes us back to World War II. For a woman named Margaret Meissner, the war was a time of personal upheaval, one that forced her to flee across Europe to escape the Nazis. In January, Lauren Ober introduced us to Margaret, who lives in Bethesda now, and found out how her experiences during the war forever changed the course of her life. 
As a young girl growing up in pre-World War II Europe, Margit Meisner's path seemed preordained. I grew up in a very well-to-do middle-class family, Jewish but not observant Jewish. And I think I was going to become the wife of some well-to-do man and I was going to have his children and run his household and be a good wife. But the Nazis had other plans. The German army was steadily encroaching on Austria and Meisner's family had to leave the country and seek refuge in what was then Czechoslovakia. Any plans for a life as a wife and mother to a respectable gentleman were abandoned in Vienna, along with the family's paintings, silver, and other valuables. I was in many ways a very naive child because I didn't have much of a world experience. But it seemed clear that if the Germans were going to do what they promised, we would certainly lose all our assets, and then each one of us would have to make a living. I was very good at making doll's dresses, and I really enjoyed it. And when the idea of leaving occurred after Austria was annexed, the big discussion was, and so what are you going to do? And the idea was that you had to make a living. So I decided I would study dressmaking in Paris, which was then and still is today the capital of fashion. So in the spring of 1938, Meisner arrived in Paris. She studied drawing, sewing, and pattern making. Later, her mother joined her. But in the spring of 1940, life fell apart. One day, mother was asked to present herself to the police station, that she would be, quote, evacuated, which was like deported. And I accompanied her to the police station, and I asked her, where are you taking her? And they said, none of your business, go home. And she had on her a certain little bit of money, which she gave me, and said, now it's up to you to get us out of here. It was clear that I now had to go into action. Meisner's mother had been taken to an internment camp near the French Pyrenees. But I had no idea. So in the meantime, the Germans were entering Paris, and everything was chaotic. I went to the police to get permission to leave. The police station was open. The policemen were gone. So I thought I had an alibi that I could leave. And so I was by myself. I had no idea whether I'm doing the right thing, where I should go. So it was all very, very frightening. Meisner joined the thousands of Parisians who were making their way out of the city. She was 18 years old. So I decided to buy a bicycle and leave on a bicycle rather than walking. And I took along my dressmaking notes and two chocolate croissants and a change of underwear and my oil paints because I thought if I was going to become a designer, I needed these paints. And that's how I left Paris on a bicycle with this enormous crowd feeling very sorry for myself and very scared and not knowing, A, where I was going, B, whether somebody in my station could do something like this. What would people think, right? That was very important for me at the time. Through a series of near-miraculous events, she found her mother. The pair escaped France only to land in a Spanish jail. Conditions there were awful. 
bed bugs, lice, holes in the ground that served as latrines. But jail was also transformative. I was confronted with prostitutes who were tremendously helpful to me. And I thought never in my life would I meet a prostitute, of course. I was pretty prejudiced against people who weren't like me. And I thought we were really superior and the world owed us something. And then the prison experience in Spain really forced me to rethink who I was. And I did some serious thinking because I realized that my view was not only not appropriate, but was also incorrect. So then I started thinking about what I could become and how I was going to transform myself. And I think it was the beginning of my becoming what I eventually became. What Meisner became was this, a cashier in North Carolina, a window dresser in Oklahoma, and a credit manager in Michigan, among many other things. After her ordeal in Spain, Meisner and her mother escaped to the U.S., where she married a G.I. Throughout the upheaval that came from following her military husband to his many postings, one thing remained constant for Meisner, work. She had always had a job, wherever she was. She re-educated German youth in Nuremberg, She helped produce U.S. foreign policy propaganda in New York. In Beverly Hills, she ran the first clothing company to make poodle skirts. What I learned was that I could take a chance to do something that I didn't know and that I would learn it. So you get a lot of self-confidence from trying things and being successful. And so I learned to be a a risk-taker And if I failed, well, I thought I'd do something else. In the years following the war, Meisner's life was a whirlwind of adventures. Far too many to get into in a short radio story. But she never revisited the life she thought she was destined to lead when she was young. I was primed in my youth to become somebody. Even if I was just the wife of a rich man, I would be... uh, a respected lady. So I didn't become a respected lady, but I became a good worker. Today, Meisner continues to be a good worker. She serves as a guide at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum here in Washington. She was the first Holocaust survivor to do so, and it's a job she considers one of her most important. I'd like to call your attention to this statement because it is very important. At crucial junctures, every individual makes decisions and every decision is individual. And that does not apply to the Holocaust only. This applies basically to all actions in your life. And you have to understand that as an individual, you have tremendous power over what you're going to do. So this is a very important thing to think about forever after. I'm Lauren Ober. You've heard from Margaret Meissner. Now you can see her in action. Head to metroconnection.org for a slideshow of photographs from her life.
Time for a break, but when we get back, a big city problem goes rural. Nothing is worse than feeling so helpless that there's nothing that we can do. That story and more is coming your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today we're walking through what we're calling the Hall of Fame as we revisit some of your favorite Metro Connection stories from the past few months. In November, Emily Berman brought us to Southern Maryland for a show we did about the rise of heroin abuse in our region. And one way to understand the issue is to look at the number of people admitted to state-sponsored treatment programs. In 2008, roughly 11 percent of people admitted to these programs came from rural areas. In 2014, it was more than 24 percent. But as Emily tells us, the problem is in these communities, treatment options can be few and far between. At the Anchor Treatment Center, there are group therapy sessions going on all day. So as we walk the halls, Christy Burns keeps her voice down. Okay, so now we're in uh, where people sleep and where part of the treatment happens. Anchor is run by Walden Sierra, an organization with several substance abuse treatment centers nearby. Patients come here from all over Southern Maryland and Prince George's County as well. We run a pretty tight ship and a tight schedule. Uh, They have between six and seven groups a day, three meals, three snacks, a movie, and bedtime. There are 52 beds in the facility, but there's only enough grant funding for 24 patients. There's typically a wait list of 50 to 70 people trying to get one of those spots. Some of the unfunded beds are used in a halfway house program, and the rest sit empty. For those who do make it into treatment, the majority are addicted to opiates, like heroin. Betsy Lenhart-Cooksey is the program's clinical director. You know, people who say I would, they never thought they would do this, they're pretty much astounded that they're injecting. Many of her patients are young, she says, just 18 or 19 years old. And their addiction has a huge impact on their families, especially the parents. You know, when our kids are little and they're sick, we take them to the pediatrician and they give us medication and we follow the rules and we make sure they're doing what they need to do. When our adult children are sick, they're not babies. We can't spoon feed them the medicine. We have to support them differently. About 20 minutes north of Anchor, a group of 30 or so parents are sitting in a circle at the Charles County Sheriff's Department. The group is called PABA, Parents Affected by Addiction. This month, like most months, the room is packed. Tonight, there's a guest speaker. Her name is Taylor Marie Hazel. She's 22 years old and wears gray jeans and moccasins. Her hair goes all the way down to her elbows. So we had a whole bunch of money, and we were heroin addicts, so what else are you going to do but spend it on heroin? It's been two months since Taylor was released from prison. She was there for first-degree burglary. She's only been back in Charles County a few times since getting out, and she doesn't plan to make a habit of it. You know, Charles County, um, it's so bad. It's kind of like coming into enemy territory. This is where she began using drugs, she explains. At 12, she drank and smoked pot. 
At 14, she was doing cocaine, ecstasy, and acid. By the time I was 16, I had just started pain pills. 17, full-blown addict. The parents in the room have questions. A lot of their kids are in prison on drug-related charges. Did you keep any of your old friends, um, even one? Um, I absolutely have no contact with uh, anybody that I used to have a past with that used to do drugs. One mother tells Taylor that the court ordered her son to go to a local Narcotics Anonymous meeting. But every time he went, he'd relapse. For him, he's going to get higher. He needs to be completely removed. And so when they court order it, it's just like, just just throw them to the wolves, you know, let him hibernate at home, you know? Taylor agrees. Out here, it can be impossible to get away from the old crowd. It's not really a help for you. See, I wish the judges would hear you say that. And the familiar faces aren't the only problem. In general, there aren't enough resources to go around. In Southern Maryland, there's high demand for homeless shelter beds. Being kicked out of the house often means living in the woods. Because when I threw my son out, you know, that night, I was like ready to just drive him to a shelter. I'm like, you're not living here. That's it. You're out. There's no shelters. He literally was in the woods for weeks was, because yeah. I, had, I had to do what I had to do for me and the rest of the Her family. Some parents just want to trust their kids again, but they don't know where to begin. Even when I had gallbladder surgery three years ago, and I told all the nurses I could tell him he's a drug addict, do not give him my Percocet prescription. I missed one. Mm-hmm. The disease is incredible. Another mother turns to Taylor and, grappling for the words, asks if she'll ever be able to love her son again. How do you get that trust? Um, trust or is there something that me as a mother could really just sit down and say? Taylor's response is simple. Tell him how you feel. Tell him what he's done. The mother nods appreciatively and the group moves on. But it's clear that this is not the sort of problem that can be solved with simple answers. I'm Emily Berman. This past fall, the New York Times Magazine published a brief list of so-called failed inventions. One of the items was the viol, sometimes called the viola da gamba. It's kind of like a small cello, but so much for failure, many people still play it. The Viola da Gamba Society of America has more than 3,000 members. Washington, D.C. has its own chapter. Hans Anderson attended a meeting in December and brought back this story. It's 7.30 on a Monday night, and viol players are showing up at Jessica Eag's house in Chevy Chase, Maryland. First, there are five viol players cramped in Eag's living room, and then more start to show up. It's pretty informal. They sit in a circle, pass out the parts, and start to play. The viol has its origins in the late 15th century, and it's still most often associated with music from the Renaissance and Baroque times. Tina Chauncey is at Eek's house tonight. Seemingly everyone in the D.C. viol community knows her, and I'll let her explain the instrument's appeal. You know, it's just, it's just a beautiful sound. It, it, it's, you know, it's like a particularly good wine. It just goes with everything. 
the viol has six strings and frets, sort of like a guitar. There are also less obvious differences between the viol and modern string instruments. So a violin is, is rather tightly constructed so that it projects that sound out. But the viol is more like a mirror because the, the back is flat and the sound comes in and is reflected up. So it's under less pressure, it's warmer. And that's what Chauncey likes about it. She also tells me there are jazz vials, electric vials. It's just like almost any niche. You look at it from the outside and you think, who would really care about marshmallow-flavored ear warmers? You know, And then you go kind of inside the community and you find that everybody in the community cares about it. The only one of us who was really famous, who got you know, anything substantial, was Jordi Saval. And the movie Tous les Matins du Monde ended up being really, really popular. And so many people I know say, oh, I know what the vial is because I saw it in this movie. That movie came out in 1991, and it's how Amy Dominguez first heard about the vial. My father had taken me to go see it at the old key theater where she thought, what is this? This is this instrument that has so many strings and it has frets. It's crazy. But she liked it, and now she's been playing for about seven years. Dominguez is a cello player by background, but she's drawn to the history of the viol. Wealthy families would have a chest of vials, you know, different sizes. And if, if you wanted to listen to music, you had to play it. So that's what people would do. We don't really have to do that anymore. But the tradition lives on in Eek's house. The viola da gamba fell out of fashion because it wasn't well-suited for concert halls. It wasn't able to project in the same way violins or cellos do. And although this seems like a good reason to maybe forget about the viol, the intimacy of viol playing is what many like about it. Carol Marsh taught music at the University of North Carolina, and for a while, she was a cello player. I don't know, it just, it just spoke to me, and I, after I'd played viol for a couple of years, I stopped playing cello. <laughs> So much cello and never looked back, yeah. That was 42 years ago. Marsh says the viol was popular for about 100 years. 1570s, 1580s to Henry Purcell, and I think the last Fantasias were written in 1678, and that was sort of the end of the viol. <laughs> Which is 327 years, about, before Sophia Morris was born. When I told them that I play it, they usually ask what it is. Um... And most people have ne- never even heard of it. <laughs> I'm talking with Morris as she colors on a whiteboard. She's in the fourth grade and is part of Jessica Eag's intermediate vial class. Good. Morris, along with their classmates, Eliza Boniface and Dante Loff, are learning vial. And while they like the tone of the instrument and its historical significance, they also like the ribbons. Each time you get a ribbon? Yeah, if we um, pass the test, then we get a little ribbon. When someone in Eeg's class plays a piece at a certain skill level, they get a green belt or a red belt, which is represented by a ribbon of that color. It's kind of like karate. At the end of class, Morris tries for a green belt. Which she gets... And is one step closer to mastering the vial. I'm Hans Anderson. Want to hear even more Viola da Gamba? You can watch the trailer for Tous les Matins du Monde on our website, metroconnection.org. And while you're there, sign up for our weekly podcast and never miss a show again. Just head to metroconnection.org.
coming up after the break. I've been here a few years, as you can tell. Uh, you know, I went from building bridges and tunnels to composting roadkill. Virginia's eco-friendly solution to an unappetizing problem. That and more is coming your way as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're airing some favorite stories from the archive with a show we're calling Hall of Fame. We'll return now to a story we first heard in October about the most famous civil rights leader you've probably never heard of. Samuel Wilbert Tucker was born in Alexandria, Virginia in 1913. And 75 years ago, on a hot August day, the African-American attorney got some young black men to head to Alexandria's only public library at the time one designated whites only. On August 21st, 1939, his younger brother Otto and some of Otto's friends began to enter the library one at a time. Each one asked for a library card, and when they were refused, they went to the shelf, took a book, sat down, and read. Nancy Noyes Silcox just wrote a biography of Tucker. It's a young adult book called Samuel Wilbert Tucker, the story of a civil rights trailblazer and the 1939 Alexandria Library sit-in. I recently met up with her at the Alexandria Public Library on Queen Street, site of the 1939 sit-in. The white people who were in the library were astounded that this was happening. This had never happened before in a public library. So the police were called, the protesters were escorted out, and Tucker had already notified the newspapers, and so there were photographers and reporters outside and about 300 people watching to see what was going to happen. And what happened was the boy's immediate arrest and eventual charge of disorderly conduct. I'd actually like to have you read something from the book, Mm -hmm. speaking of that charge of disorderly conduct, here on page 45. Lawyer Tucker defended the young men in court. During the hearing, he asked, were they destroying property? No, was the answer. Were they properly attired, dressed for the library? Yes, was the answer. Were they quiet? Yes. Then they were disorderly only because they were black, asked Tucker. The arresting officer and the librarian admitted this was true. Judge Duncan delayed the case several times and finally made no ruling. The five protesters were not convicted. They never went to jail. The incident sparked Alexandria to build the separate blacks-only Robert Robinson Library. It was about the size of a small row house. It had used furniture and old books, and the librarian was paid half that of the librarian at the Queen Street Library. And then what eventually happened with Alexandria's libraries? When were they integrated? The Robinson Library closed in 1959. So sometime after that, the Alexandria Libraries quietly integrated. Tucker's interest in extending equal rights to all began at a young age. When he was just 14, he had a run-in with the law that would change his outlook forever. He and his older brother George and his younger brother Otto and a friend of theirs were coming back from D.C. on the streetcar. And a white woman got on the streetcar and went to the back of the streetcar where the boys were sitting. And they had actually moved the seat back to face the black section it had been facing the white section. The back, so the, the, the seat sort of flipped. Slide back and slide yeah. back and forth. The boys wanted to sit facing each other. So a white woman asked them if they would move, and they refused. 
because they believed they weren't doing anything wrong. Well, when they all got off in Alexandria, they were charged with disorderly conduct, and they were convicted and fined. But their father's friend, Tom Watson, who was an attorney, appealed the case, and there was a jury of five white men who found the boys not guilty of disorderly conduct. And from that incident, Tucker realized that in a court of law, justice was sometimes possible. Let's talk about his foray then into the legal profession. Now he went to Howard University for undergrad, Mm -hmm. and he did become a lawyer, but I understand he never went to law school. No, that's true. He didn't go to law school. When he finished Howard, he could have gone on to Howard's Law School, but he said that he didn't want to go to school broke. This was 1933. That was Depression time. And instead, he read the law on his own. And so he read the law for six months after he finished Howard University. And in December, took the bar exam. Um, This is what's interesting, too. He couldn't go to a law school in Virginia, but he was allowed to take the bar exam. And the seating was segregated. But he took the exam in 1933 and passed. And he couldn't get his license. Because he wasn't 21 yet. He wasn't 21. (laughs) You would think it might be because of discrimination, but he wasn't 21. And you have to be 21 to be a lawyer in Virginia. So once he officially became a lawyer, I understand his first case was a murder trial. But he became especially well-known for focusing on school integration and voting rights. Can you tell us what achievements he brought about in desegregating public schools? Well, during his 50-year career, he argued hundreds of cases all over Virginia. And the case that he's most well-known for is his 1968 case, Green versus New Kent County, which came 14 years after Brown versus the Board of Education. And we consider that that, in 1954, was the landmark case for school desegregation, but it didn't really result in integrated schools or desegregated schools until Tucker's case in 1968. Uh, Many school boards had freedom of choice plans. Now, the reality of that was that the white students did not select to go to inferior black schools, and very few black students chose to go to white schools where they faced hostility and discrimination. So it wasn't until the Green versus the County School Board of New Kent County that there was a a good way of challenging these freedom of choice plans. New Kent County is uh, east of Richmond, and it's a rural county. It was an integrated community, yet there were two separate schools on either end of the county, one for white students and one for black students. And the kids were bused to go to their school. And it would have been very easy to decide that one school was for kindergarten through sixth grade and the other for seventh through twelfth grade. But that didn't happen until Tucker's Supreme Court case in which the Supreme Court decided that it was time for school boards to immediately desegregate. So you wrote this book for young people. And I want you to tell us, what do you hope these younger readers will take away from Tucker's story? In one interview, Tucker was asked just about the same question. What was the advice that he had for young people? And he said that we need to keep the progress in civil rights that we've made and keep fighting to make more and keep our story told. Being vigilant to see that we don't lose some of our civil rights that were so fiercely fought for is a a lesson and a message that I think is important for young people today. 
Nancy Noyes-Silcox is the author of a biography on Samuel Wilbert Tucker. She was also the first librarian at Samuel W. Tucker Elementary School in Alexandria. Find more information on her book on our website, metroconnection.org. In January, we reported that Virginia thinks it may have come up with an efficient and environmentally friendly way to deal with roadkill. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson has the story on giving the remains of animal car collisions new life. Roadkill might just be the opposite of what you would call a topic for polite dinner party talk. But Jimmy White says you'd be surprised how many people's ears perk up when he raises the subject, as he eagerly does these days. No, it, it's, it sort of livens up the conversation. And, you know, I, I've had a, my career at VDOT. I've, I've been here a few years, as you can tell. Uh, you know, I went from building bridges and tunnels to composting roadkill. Before we get down to the details, you should know that VDOT has been researching roadkill composting for a good 10 years now. White, who's in charge of implementing new research and technology for the agency, says VDOT needed to find a new way to deal with roadkill because animal carcasses have become much more than an unpleasant nuisance. They're now an expensive problem, costing the state more than $4 million a year. And that was going up, and it was going up pretty quickly. Uh, we have some areas of the state where we'll, we'll have to pay 60 to to $100 per carcass to dispose of them. That's, you know... That's, that's a lot of money. Decades ago, local landfills were the simplest option for disposing of roadkill. But local landfills have all but disappeared. And the costs of simply transporting roadkill to regional facilities add up fast. Burying carcasses has remained a common practice, but even that has become a real challenge, as deer populations have exploded in some areas where car traffic is increasing as well. They'll have times when they'll have 25 or 30 deer that they pick up in a day. That's a big pile of stuff that you've got to get rid of. And so VDOT turned its eyes across the border into North Carolina. That's where a company called Advanced Composting Technologies was doing interesting work with the livestock and food service industries, two fields that have long searched for the best ways to deal with, shall we say, unsavory waste products. Composting, of course, is nothing new, but the innovation has come in just how fast that composting can happen. 45 days is the waiting time, on average. And nothing left. It's just, it's... Yep, they're gone. That's Mac Bryant a road maintenance crew member for VDOT down in Windsor, Virginia, where the agency has placed one of four pilot composting facilities. Bryant and his crewmates clear dead animals off the local roadways and bring them here to cover them with a mix of compost material and sawdust. This morning, he's got three deer to deal with, and right now he's tossing compost material onto the animals to get the process started. And that's basically about it, as long as they're covered. The genius of composting is in the free labor provided by the microorganisms that already live inside just about any living thing. Microorganisms that do the work of decomposition once mortality sets in. One key to boosting the efficiency of the system lies in the buzzing you hear in the background. This sound. These are air pumps. They push air through little PVC pipes at the bottom of each of the four garage-sized chambers here. Those pipes then send that air up through the composting pile, creating an environment where all those microbes can thrive. 
Another trick, and warning, this is especially icky. As the animals decompose, liquids called leachate seep out of the compost pile. This system catches the leachate so it can be sprayed back onto the piles, speeding up the decomposition process even more. And we're not creating anything that we have to dispose of. We're, we're, we're catching all the leachate, we're pumping it back into the process, so when we get finished, we just end up with some good fertilizer that we can use out here on the road. Even though VDOT's new roadkill routine is still in pilot phase, White says Virginia is already the leading state in the country when it comes to the practice. No facilities so far have made it up to the heavily congested roads of northern Virginia, where White says VDOT may find it needs them the most. The interesting thing about deer, a lot of us think that deer live out in the woods away away from everybody, and they do, but not in the numbers that you have when you get into the suburban areas. You've got areas in northern Virginia that are just, just deer after deer after deer. That means in the not-too-distant future, VDOT's new microbe workforce could be busier than ever, making it hard for you to keep down your most recent meal. I'm Jonathan Wilson. Interested in seeing that new roadkill composting process? You can watch a slideshow on our website, metroconnection.org. And uh, don't worry, you won't see any close-ups. We promise. wrap things up today with a story that came to our attention in January. We receive a lot of emails from listeners, and we happen to receive an email from Ryan Nelson. Ryan says he listens to Metro Connection on Saturday mornings as he's driving to local skate parks. Here's the thing, though. Ryan is 40. As he wrote in his email, I've been mostly skating with people between ages 35 and 50. We all hold down pretty respectable jobs, and we always arrive at the parks super early. Well, we wanted to know more. So we sent Lauren Landau to meet up with Ryan and his crew to find out why skateboarding isn't just for kids. The cold air bites through my sneakers and thin gloves, but the sun is shining when I arrive at Sunnyside Skate Park in College Park on a Saturday morning. By the way, yeah. I hope you didn't come out here to see, like, good skating. No, 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 no. <laughs> some, some guys can, can rip and skate really well, but not me. I've been mediocre for most of my life, so... That's Ryan Nelson, and I think he's joking. But mediocre or not, he's been a skateboarder for most of his life. I started skating in 1986 when I was in sixth grade, and we never wore pads. We never did any anything like that. I grew up here, and on the East Coast, there weren't any skate parks, there weren't any bowls, there weren't anything. All we did was skate street. Every once in a while, he says, word would get out about a vertical ramp out in the country. Out in the country, I mean like in Upper Marlboro. That's not the country, but somebody with a lot of land out there would actually build a ramp. He'd be a friend of a friend of a friend. We'd make a trek out there to skate his ramp for like an hour. You couldn't practice and get good at this sort of thing, and we'd be terrible. He says he kept at it until about midway through high school, then stopped, for the most part, skating off and on. Until last year. It's like a Rip Van Winkle sort of thing. I haven't skated in years and years and years, and then when I woke up, 
all these free parks are everywhere. They're all over the place, and it's crazy, and they're all free. And he says that's created a whole generation of skateboarders who see the activity in a totally different light. For us, it used to be vert skating and street skating, you know, back in the mid-'80s, and the really hardcore people would do pool skating. But now there's this whole other thing, which is called park skating. So kids, like, that's their initiation. My initiation was skating a 7-Eleven and back. You know, like, skateboarding was transportation first, and then it was something else. The scene has changed, but so has Ryan. He's 40 now, a soon-to-be father and a high school English teacher. His students know he skates, by the way. Some of them, not all of them, but some of them have asked me about it. And I've been very clear with them that we're never going to hang out. The guys in Ryan's crew are in their 30s and 40s, for the most part. So we're not talking about retirees here. But they are older, and Ryan says the extra years make a difference. I think the difference is that when we fall now, it hurts so much more. Even though he was too cool and resilient for wrist guards back in the day, Ryan wears them now. It's easier to get hurt, and the stakes are higher. These guys have jobs, families, and real responsibilities. But they're still skateboarders. When are you going to stop skating? When do you hang up the skateboard? Hopefully never. What's the... Yeah, what's the quote from Lance? says, um, skateboarding doesn't make you a skateboarder. It's not being able to stop skateboarding that makes you a skateboarder. (laughs) That was John Bulldog, but everybody calls him Bulldog. He's 42 and has been skating for about 30 years. He says it's a huge part of who he is, and his wife recognizes that. When I don't skate, she's kind of like, oh my God, you need to get out of here. You need to go skate because I get kind of more crazy when I don't have, like, the release Bethesda resident Christopher Grady is 38 and says his body has changed since the late 80s when he first started skating. I'm easily 70 pounds heavier than the last time when I was skating consistently. So uh, I had to completely relearn balance and everything. It, It was a bummer of a first day back. And I kind of ate it a couple of times pretty hard. But, uh, it's not like riding a bike. No, it is not <laughs> like riding a bike at all. Sometimes, when it's too crummy out to skate, the guys drive down to Virginia to visit Patty Hurst. The 48-year-old mom doesn't merely allow skating in her house. She encourages it. We're in my basement of my townhouse in the East Falls Church area of Arlington. And uh, half of the basement is devoted to a mini ramp that is about two feet tall and 12 feet wide and has a spine and a wall that goes to vert, meaning that you can skate up on one of the walls and come back down. At first, this space was a storage room. My original idea was to build the quarter pipe down in the basement so that I could skate here in peace without bothering my neighbors. (laughs) And it just grew from there. This is actually the second version of this mini ramp. We built it once and then it got too small and too easy and we tore it down and built it again to be more difficult and fun. Ryan, Christopher, and Bulldog all started skating when they were kids. But Patty's road to the ramp was a bit different. I started when I was 39. I had a midlife crisis. The Winter Olympics were on TV, and Patty watched as snowboarder Sean White won his first gold medal in the halfpipe competition. He was excited and having fun and making jokes, and I told myself I really need to get a little bit of that in my life. With that, Patty decided she'd become a snowboarder. But she quickly realized there aren't many opportunities to carve down mountainsides in the Washington area. When she learned that her muse, Sean White, is also a skateboarder, she decided to give that a try. I went into a skate shop here in the Vienna area, and I told the dude who was probably 18 years old behind the counter that I wanted to set up a board, and he said, you mean for your son? <laughs> I said, no, <laughs> for 
me. <laughs> and he took a breath, and to his credit, he spent the next three hours choosing all of the parts of a skateboard that we would need to set me up with my very first skateboard. She set out for local skate parks and found there's a pretty large community of adult skateboarders here in the D.C. area. 39-year-old skateboarder Anna Martin just landed a trick on Patty's mini-ramp. I've been skating for two years, and um, actually Patty was there the first day I dropped it, so I met her pretty early on in the scene. She says there's a lot more to skateboarding than the activity itself. Skateboarding has taught me that I can accomplish things that I never thought I could, and when you do get to that point where you do accomplish it, there's no other feeling like it, but it does teach you to um, overcome your fears and set goals for yourself and surpass any boundaries that you might have. Patty says she wishes she'd tried skating sooner, but says it didn't even occur to her until she was nearly 40 years old. I don't know why, but it took me that long to realize that I wanted to have some fun. She says it's never too late to start anything, really. I'm Lauren Landau. You can check out Lauren's skateboarders Skating the Bowl on our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Emily Berman, Lauren Landau, Lauren Ober, Jonathan Wilson, and Hans Anderson. WAMU's Managing Editor of News is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's Managing Producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our Editorial Assistant. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU Engineering and Digital Media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. That's metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. If you missed part of today's show or you want to check out previous editions of Metro Connection, head to our website, metroconnection.org. While you're there, you can also subscribe to our weekly podcast or find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we'll devote the hour to the next generation. We'll meet a 12-year-old harmonica player who's not letting blindness block a budding career. We'll talk with a young farmer who's pursuing agriculture in an increasingly suburban corner of Maryland. And we'll meet a man who's been getting kids' toes tapping for 40 years. I just write something and and my own sense of humor comes out. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.